It's What's Next with Peter Buffett. I'm Jimmy Buff. And are you, Peter, a can-do person? Would you call yourself a can-do person? <laughs> oh, boy. This, uh, this, go, this, this goes a, to attitude. Is this a trick question? Uh, the lead-in, of <laughs> <Yeah>. course. <laughs> um, I, uh, I am, actually, my, my wife, Jennifer, would laugh, certainly, because I have I've done a lot of things in terms of having an idea and going, you know what, let's do that. Let's try that. So yeah, uh-huh. I, I am. Including the radio show. Including, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess I hear a right. case in point. Because what kills me about um, the, the in, there's uh, now a sort of uh, version of infighting amongst Democrats, the uh, Bernie people and the Hillary people. Right. Um, the, you know, the wisdom is that, uh, it, it, that Bernie can't get anything done. You know, anything that Bernie says that he wants to do, he won't be able to get done. So you got to vote for Hillary right. because she's more pragmatic and she'll get it done. And she even said in, uh, you know, in, uh, before the Iowa caucus that um, single payer will never, ever happen. Right. And that's a, not a can-do person. No. That's a can't-do that, person. Yeah, that means it's it's not. And and yeah. that's it's so interesting because it, it's true. If if you're living in the frame of, well, that'll never happen, well, you know, then it's not going to ever happen yeah. for you. And, you're, and, and if you're representing millions of people and you're saying that'll never happen, uh, yeah, what does that do? To a can-do person, to a person that that in their little way is saying, "Oh, you know, I wish this could happen. I want it to. I'm I'm going to believe in it." And then you hear politicians talk about the fact that certain things just can't. They yeah. won't. And and that led to and that kind of thinking is what led to slavery existing from 1776 until 1865. Yeah. Because the the you know we could we can't get a country made if right. we don't allow the South. Right. You know, their way. Right. Yeah. So they compromise. So they compromise. And and there it goes. And then, you know, the country really wasn't a country until that was tested in the Civil War. I mean, a lot of people say we were a country twice. (laughs) We in 1776, when everybody came together and then during the Civil War, when everybody came together on separate sides, but we're we're fighting for some kind of a union. Um, yeah, and and uh, in light of today's guest, actually, the idea of can do and and um, uh, the the kind of person that that will push and make something happen would be considered to have uh, what would be masculine qualities, you know. And, and we all have both, by the way. I mean, this is not about men and women, um, but there's the the pushing, the doing. Uh, the motivating force, and then there's the nurturing, the listening, uh, the collaborative uh, qualities, which would be considered feminine for a lot of people. And and to find that balance in all of us, that's why when you ask the question, are you a can-do person, I thought, well, yeah, <laughs> but I do like to consider as well and think about uh, what's best for some larger good, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, uh, you know, with the perspective, too, of this show, you know, being what's next, um, it gets frightening that what's next could possibly be what's the same. You know, yeah. it's the same again. Right. right. And, you know, the incremental, maybe progressive things that happen over a long period of time. And I might just be impatient. I must. Right. I might just want something right. different now. Yeah. But impatience is a, a critical quality yeah. to getting something different <laughs> ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and ultimately, I'm a big believer in balance. You know, it really does take things, but not 
just gray, lukewarm balance, <laughs> but a, a balance where you can really go between the outward expression and the movement towards something and then the inward consideration and thinking, is this what's best for what's next? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, and if you, you know, you can't manifest what you can't imagine either. Absolutely. Right? And that's where yeah. imagination has to play a part in right. anything, including the future of, of, you know, of this country. Yeah, you have no. to imagine it as it will be twenty five right. or thirty years down the road, and 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 start putting things in place that that will make that happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the founding fathers put a lot of creativity into those documents. They had to, you know, because it was a new thing, and and we can't stop that. I mean, that's what Thomas Jefferson knew is that we got to remake this thing every so often because I think he said you can't expect. Um, the the clothes of a child to fit those uh, of an elder, right? You have to change the the cut and the style and the size, and and so that's where we are. We got to change that. Yeah, and definitely have outgrown some of those threads. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> the guest today is Elizabeth Lesser from the Omega Institute. Yes, the founder of the Omega Institute. Uh, we'll have a far ranging conversation with her. We get to have her on the whole hour, which I'm looking forward to. Elizabeth. Hello, Peter. <laughs> I'm here with Elizabeth Lesser. Jimmy and I are both here with Elizabeth Lesser, and, and you are probably most well-known in these parts as uh, the uh, founder, co-founder of the Omega Institute, uh, but you're much more than that. You have uh, written a few books and another one on the way. Uh, you have been really uh, a seeker, a uh, someone interested in the mystery of life, as well as how to bring that down into the material world, Omega being a, uh, one of those examples. And in that searching uh, and creating, you have helped I don't, countless people in their own searching and, and their journey. And I think that's uh, something that is uh, really commendable, if nothing else, is that it's one thing to look inward or, uh, you know, to follow some kind of a practice. It's another to take that out into the world and, and really create something where other people uh, can find some of those same answers or, or, or look to some of the same questions and, and, and hear people talk about them. So I'm curious because your writings and even Omega really does focus on uh, healing, transformation, um, maybe uh, giving some answers to questions people have. Uh, and I would say pretty much always on a personal level. I mean, you're, you have had a, a personal journey that you have reflected back out into the world. But now we're on the precipice of a cultural um, emergency, I would say, that's been going on for a while, but seems to be peaking in some mm -hmm. ways. So how could you take some of what you have learned personally and what you've seen happen at Omega and apply it to maybe our larger world at the moment. How about that for an opening question? <laughs> Just a small question. Right. right. <clears throat> well, it's a great question because it's been the motivating question of my life. Mm -hmm. um, 
like you said, I'm mostly interested in how spiritual, quote-unquote, ideals can be translated into everyday life. There's so much written, so much wonderful stuff written about what it means to be a spiritual seeker, the practices, uh, what, what you do, who you follow. But what people really want is, okay, okay, I know that. I know I'm supposed to be good. I know I'm supposed to be loving. I know everyone's connected and everything is one and bloody, bloody, bloody. But like, what's it to me? How do I make it real? Right. And what does it even look like if I were to make it real? And that's what I'm interested in. And that's why my books are all memoirs. Every time I sit down to write a new book, I think, please don't make me write about myself again. <laughs> right. I'm so sick of myself. <laughs> uh, are people really interested in me? And then people will tell me, I loved your books, but I just skipped to the parts about you. I just yeah. want to know, like, how does a real person make this high and lofty idealism real in everyday life, in my marriage? In my work to make the world a better place at work when I want to, like, kill my colleague, what what do you do? How do I do it? And the only way I know how to do that is to tell my own story and to tell my blunders even more than my transformations and my transcendency. So what was your question? How how do we do it? How do we make – especially now at this precipice time, you know, the world has always been screwed up. Right. People, human beings, we always all teeter on mm-hmm. the line of our higher angels and our lowest selves. Mm-hmm. But I do think the amount of humans in the world, right. the environmental devastation, the amount of media where we know what's going on all the time has made us all sort of crazy and anxious. Right. And we are at a point, I feel it right now, especially in the American presidential election, where we could perhaps find ourselves with a reality TV show host billionaire as our president. Oh, forgive me for even saying it, but I do think it's a time when anyone interested in the perfection of self has to look outside and say, um, I got to get involved and make sure that the perfection of humanity is also preserved. Right. And, and, What's stopping that is a lot of, I think, what you started to describe and and speaks to things that I think mostly, I mean, it's interesting because we can talk about uh, the we've always been kind of screwy, but the truth is, I think in the last 150 years or so, it's really gotten out of hand. And I think that people, uh, it's interesting because I, I didn't really learn this until recently. I started to read what people were writing in the 1830s and 40s and 50s around division of labor, alienation in general, uh, the house household shifting from a place of production to a place of consumption where you had to go out and buy all the things to bring them home. And, and this whole shift in how we're... Uh, brought together as a community, as people, as workers in a job, like all these things have atomized, you know, have, have split us into such tiny pieces that we don't feel like we're part of a whole. And and then you get a galvanizing figure that says, you don't feel part of a whole. <laughs> and it seems to really, um, well, it's dangerous. And again, there have been dangerous times before, but this is, is unique because, like you say, the media in particular is reflecting back um, only part of the story, and it's not the pretty mm-hmm. part. Well, I think it's unique because we're both on the prep- 
precipice of great destruction, but also great unity. Yep. I don't think it's only a time of enormous um, alienation and disunity. I also think it's a time when, especially through technology, right. we know our oneness with each other and the energetic field of life. We know it as a species more than we ever have. Therefore, yep. I am always tipped more into the court of hope than I am of despair. And I think it's really important for people who love life and love all races and all people and value justice to stay in hope. Because right. if we become only aware of the, the breakdown of the natural world and the breakdown of community and start only giving voice to our despair, we lose people who want to join us. So I do think it's also a very hopeful time. Mm -hmm. Should we choose life and choose the light, um, we could blossom right now into quite a, um, a remarkable time. Absolutely. And I do think it's funny because people think of technology uh, often as a negative force, but it's neutral. I mean, whether it's fire, which was the first technology, <laughs> yeah. or any other one, um, it's just sitting there waiting to be used. And, and our nature is to do both things with it, you know, find um, uh, negative ways to use it, but also positive. But I think this time, uh, not unlike when the printing press happened, I mean, this is a unique time in our species evolution, and it, it is very exciting because I think we do get to see each other in ways we never have before. Yeah, how we use it. And to me, like my, my guiding principle is, am I using anything for love? Mm -hmm. You know, love as opposed to fear. Right. And so if, if we all join together and say we're going to use technology and use our times to further love, um, then we'll be this strong force. I mean, because it was just recently Martin Luther King's birthday, right. you know, I always make a point to really read what he said and not just uh, worship the icon, right. you know, to yep. really read yep. what, what was this man about, his writings about the power of love. And the necessity to have this kind of muscular love, not mm -hmm. a Pollyanna love, but a love that's like fire, that right. burns through the fear and connects people. That's, to me, what if one meditates and chants or does yoga or goes to church and you ask yourself, is it working? Mm -hmm. am I, what am I doing this for? Yes, if like you wake up in the morning and you love life a little more. Yeah. And you love your mate a little more. Not like, oh, you're a good wife or husband or you're a good colleague. No, you're like you're like kind of ecstatic to be alive. Right. Yeah, which that's it. It's it's being alive. It's life force. It's you know, when I we moved up here fairly recently, but in the past three years I've been in nature like never before. And what you see is life force and the fact that that is always moving towards the light literally um and and it is love i mean it feels like that and and that it's not about love conquering it's about love like burning dissipating you know really shifting uh the feeling from fear into to a hopeful optimism and and uh, you know a, a whole different place which is very possible to do but but so many people say well yeah easy for you to say 
but I've got this mortgage and I'm frustrated with this and my boss is that. And, you know, it is very difficult to live it every day. Yeah, and that's that's where uh, practice comes in, right. spiritual practice. Right. Uh, like you, let's say you wanted to play basketball and you went out every day and dribbled the ball over and over and over. And then one day, lo and behold, you, you really could play the game. Right. And that's what spiritual practice is. Right. You like try to burn through your egocentric need to control right. so that love <laughs> might like filter up a little bit. Right. And that's why we practice whatever your pr- choice is. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I somebody asked me about what my practice was or do I have one and and my answer was a little flippant, but it's it's you know, we talk about a doctor that's practicing and I want to go to a doctor that's done practicing and actually doing it. <laughs> but but there's that part of it. It's it's the practice, just like you say, with a with any kind of sport or playing the piano or whatever you but then you start to feel it. Then you get it under your skin, mm-hmm. so to speak. And the practice um it, it it morphs into something different because then it's just sort of a reminder to keep you in this place. But mm-hmm. the place comes, and and what I've found is surprising, and this is both in myself and in my relationship because I want to talk about this more, but everything happens in relationship, so there's that. Um, but I believe there's an upward spiral, just like there's a downward one. And if you can flip the energy, and it really is with love, uh, and the well-worn be the change you want to see in the world. But, you know, th- at the upward spiral is real because once you start to shift towards a loving, inclusive stance, it feeds back on itself. And, and you start to to create a world around you that, 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 that returns what you're putting out. One thing that really is a sign to me that I'm, like, doing okay is that decisions are less difficult to make. Like, I like, okay, because life is just one long series of 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 astoundingly (laughs) difficult decisions to make, especially now with so many options. Mm -hmm. And, for example, uh, politically right now, like, how do you know where to go? How do we help in a time of an election further our country toward love and justice, it's so difficult. So many people just opt out. Right. I don't know. I don't know what to do, who to choose. Does it even make a difference? But every now and then, if you're really listening, or if I'm really listening, I'll talk about myself now, think, yeah, I have to do something right now. Mm-hmm. I complain all day long to my husband, to my friends, to people at work about, let's say, what I perceive as hate being spewed by some of the candidates. Mm-hmm. And I I can't stand for it anymore. I right. must do something. Right. If I true am true to my word, if I have integrity, I'm not going to be a bystander. Right. I'm not going to be one of those people who sits it out while, while your country goes down the tubes. Right. Right. So this is a time, like, for example, there's a great website right now, uh, which is called Stop Hate. Dump Trump. Right. If this so floats your boat, right. <laughs> I suggest visiting it, and then you can get involved to do something instead of just worrying and complaining. Right, and and it's important in those situations. People do need. Some people need leadership. They need to feel like there's someone. I think that's what Omega is built on to some extent. It's people coming there so they can open themselves up to possibility because someone 
uh, resonates in a in a, a way in terms of of uh, opening up ideas or uh, ways of being, whatever it might be. And so, leadership is important as long as it doesn't become idolatry and and goes off the rails and and uh, ideology and and that's what we're seeing, which is and and why I also am finding with that particular website and and the idea of of signatures uh, being had to to really call for somebody like Trump and it happens to be Trump but it's not it it's it's about him but it's about more than him it's about having that kind of discourse uh in our uh, political dialogue because it 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 goes beyond uh, partisanship for me it, it's about the kinds of uh ideas and thoughts that are being introduced in what would be a leadership position. I mean, this is somebody uh, that is talking about uh, leading our country, and uh, that's that is scary when it 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 pivots on uh, hateful and um, uh, just an ideology that that separates us as opposed to brings mm-hmm. us together. And it's certainly not based in a, a loving, compassionate mm-hmm. place. Well, my my idea of what does it mean to be a spiritual seeker. Mm-hmm. That question really is, what does it mean to get your own ego needs out of the way long enough to see the other person? Right. I'm real, you're real. We both have needs. We both have control issues. How, as you say, it all comes down to relationship. Well, that gets writ large in the political system. All the political system is, to me, are relationships. Right. So when a leader becomes more about furthering his or her own uh, enormous sense of need to be seen and to control and will do anything, even raise hatred among people so as to win. Right. The ego wants to win. The loving self wants to connect. Right. Yeah. And and so this speaks, since we're on ego, <laughs> um, the, the cleanliness of ego, right? And what can... Uh, create an outsized need to be heard, uh, wanted, uh, to destroy, to whatever it might be. And and that, to me, always comes back to trauma. And, and I think that, uh, that wounded uh, people often wound, not always, but, you know, that's often the case. And and so, and and I believe the country is traumatized in a variety of ways, and I think it has inflicted trauma on others, and it hasn't talked about that. So we have this soup, really, of of uh, woundedness uh, and the inability for men, in particular. Now we're going into it <laughs> to be vulnerable enough to to speak on that issue and to talk about um, being wounded and and being traumatized. Mm -hmm. And so we end up with what we've got. Yeah. Well, my second book, Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, is all about trauma. Mm -hmm. And trauma is a buzzword now, but, you know, one's divorce can be a trauma, an illness can be a trauma, the death of a child just getting up in the morning can right. feel like a trauma. So the book is about how do you take what comes our way, and no one escapes trauma. Right. How do you take it and spin it into a gold of transformation, which is really what Omega Institute has been about for almost 40 years now, a place where people can come 
and learn actual tools to take what life's hands each one of us mm -hmm. and spin it into some form of empowerment and a sense of purpose right. and, and a way to live out a, a destiny that's, that feels whole and wonderful and exciting. Right. Which is no small task because we, I, again, I am hopeful, optimistic. I, I wanted to kind of state that because there's so much cynicism that comes out in me on this show because of the frustrations around the systems that are in place that I think the word purpose is is sort of it. I mean, that, that makes, I, I think that instills in people um, a, a, a lack of a sense of purpose. I don't know how else to put it exactly, but you put children into an education system that starts to divide and, and, and conquer to some extent and fill their heads, heads up with things. You know, again, education, the word means to bring out. Some of us know that and, and forget that uh, as opposed to fill up like the, the children come in with these empty heads and you fill them up with things. And, uh, so to have a place like Omega to write the kinds of things that you do to kind of um, shake a lot of that stuff out of our heads, actually, so we can remember uh, what our purpose or even learn to, to recognize what purpose might even feel like. Mm -hmm. And before you can know this mysterious thing called purpose, right. um, which, of course, I think is very misunderstood, you know, your right. purpose could be getting up and breathing deeply every day. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to be the head of the UN. I mean, right. it could be <laughs> right. uh, whatever it is. But until you come into another word, which I actually love, and I've had a lot of disagreement from friends and colleagues, I love the word power. Mm -hmm. The word empowerment means to be in possession of your own sovereignty, right. your own sense of power. I mean, the sun is powerful. The winds are powerful. It's a sense of being alive and in, uh, in, in the stream of energy. Right. So before you can even know your purpose, you have to like feel your own power and destiny. And that's what systems try to keep people from feeling because a whole bunch of powerful people, whoa, watch out. They right. might actually ask for what they want right. and go after it. So in that way, I've always felt a place like Omega and other places like it, you know, which sometimes people put down as like, oh, soft, human potential, spiritual. Mm -hmm. I actually think they're very revolutionary places because that's where you go to reconnect with your power. Right. And then learn how to use it for the good of yourself and your family and the world. But the first step is to reclaim your power. Right. And and – there's a, a great, I think, simple way to, to slice that that's, that's more uh, acceptable to the people that might disagree, and it's power with versus power over, right? Mm -hmm. and, and power first, like you said, inside yourself. And it's, uh, I love that you brought up sovereignty because I think personal sovereignty is really starting to come to the fore. And I think you see it with the Black Lives Matter movement and the LGBTQ uh, movement in terms of the, the, the awareness and the shifts in laws uh, and, and just cultural change. Yeah. The Black Lives Matter is a perfect example. The trauma of being black in America, it, white privileged people, we, we can't even begin to know 
what it means. Right. So when I began to note the Black Lives Matter movement taking form and, and getting such traction, it was thrilling to me right. because it's about people saying, I matter. Now, that, of course, can be taken way too far. America can be blamed for enormous narcissism like i matter so much nobody right. else matters exceptionalism yep but yep. empowerment and exceptionalism are two very different things yeah yeah exactly talk more about that because this is i think so important for people to understand the difference in some ways understand that just because someone matters doesn't mean you don't or that somehow you're you are directly responsible mm -hmm. for them not mattering. Yeah. I mean there's so much in there's there. There's so much. <laughs> well, you know, I I I'm writing a new book. I'm done with it, but I was writing a story for it recently and it it came from being driving picking up my grandson at preschool mm -hmm. and cuz I pick him up on one day a week. And he's in the back of the car, and anybody who has or knows little kids will know they're – you never know. Are they listening to everything or completely tuning you out? Right. And if they're listening, they are listening. They are listening. <laughs> and I happen to have on my Sirius XM the Oprah channel on, and I'm listening to an interview between her and the teacher Eckhart Tolle, who's mm -hmm. come to Omega a whole lot. And they're talking about being and feeling special. And Eckhart is explaining to Oprah that the ego wants to be special. The ego needs to be special. And all of a sudden, I hear my little four-year-old grandson in the back, and he says, But Grandma, I want to be special. <laughs> I want to be special. So I turn off the radio, <laughs> right. and I say to him, Well, you are special, but everyone else is special too. And he said, no, that's not what special means. Special <laughs> means I'm special. <laughs> and I realized then, okay, this is an appropriate evolutionary stage for a four-year-old. His ego is developing. Right. He needs to feel special. Right. He needs to feel he's the only dude in the world. And then he'll spend the rest of his life, once he gets a sense of sovereign power, right. understanding but everyone else is special too. So can a bunch of special, sovereign, empowered people say, hello, other special, just as special as me, no matter what, no matter your class, race, gender, age, anything? Can we be bright, shining stars next to each other, or do we have to have this sense of only me? Like, there actually is enough shine in the world for everyone. Right. That's the the misconception That's, that right. like if if you're bright, you're going to somehow take light away from me. But there's enough for all of us. Right. And and that's the structure we live inside of in terms of scarcity, zero sum, these ideas that that if if you're getting something I'm not. And that that is I think how the wrong kind of power keeps power is by saying if you're not with us, you're not going to get what's yours. That's right. And there's not enough for everyone. Those people over there, if they get it, that means we're not getting it. So join right. with me. We're going to go take it from them. Right. And then we'll be okay.
listening to What's Next. This is Peter Buffett, and we are talking with Elizabeth Lesser. So I still, you know, it, it, it starts at the individual level. I mean, the whole be the change you want to see in the world is, is a fact. I think too many people think it's a do the change you want to see in the world. And so they're out there doing things and forgetting that it actually starts from the inside out. And uh, again, I just want to, uh, because you're here, just take any opportunity to talk about how you see, in some ways, I guess Omega is a great way to, to look at a larger pattern, right? Because there's your life and there's the books you write and that people can relate to those. And uh, and it's funny because when I went to China the first time, I started to speak and uh, people were hanging on every word. And, and then I was reminded that, you know, don't give them advice, tell them your story and that that's that's where the truth is, is, is your story. And, uh, and at the same time at Omega, you do get to see larger patterns. And Omega was founded 1971. Is that right? Or no, no, no. I'm way off. Okay. Um, 1975. Okay. I'm not that far You're off. You're not that far oh, off. Excellent. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's within oh, bounds. Yeah. <laughs> so in this period of, uh, now that, that does make it 40 years, um, are there patterns you can sort of describe in, in shifts of, of people coming or what's being said, that kind of mm -hmm. thing? Absolutely. Um, we started, we were a bunch of people in our early 20s. We were just kids. Right. And it was the, the beginning of the holistic health, um, a sense of spiritual teachers from all over the world. It was like gurus were washing up on the shores of America and <laughs> yoga, mindfulness, mm -hmm. um, eating well, how physical health and um, psychological healing were linked, the mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. This was all just so out there then, so right. weird and uh, at the fringe. And um, my uh, ex-husband, who is the co-founder of Omega, is a medical doctor, and he was just a young medical student interested in this. I was very interested in spiritual teachers and art. I'm very mm -hmm. much into the intersection of creativity and spiritual growth. So we just thought, well, if we're interested in this, I, I imagine other people are too. We slapped together a few teachers. Some of our early teachers came for no money because no one else gave them a place to speak, like Deepak Chopra or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, people like this wow. who are now household names were thrilled to come because no one else was listening to them <laughs> anywhere. And so we were all very much in it together, as were all of the students coming. Everyone was about the same age, and nobody had any money, and we mm. were just cobbling together all this stuff. And we had no idea how to run a facility or do marketing, none of this. We knew nothing. We made it right. up as we went along. And we were joined by a whole bunch of other zealots. Right. And it, <laughs> no one made any money. And it was an actual, you know, real passionate calling for at least our first 15 years. Wow. And because wow. it, it was it was a monster that kept growing. Like right. uh, for the first two or three years, we were like, should we do this again next year? <laughs> and then suddenly it was way bigger than us. Huh. I've always felt like Omega is an entity. You know, mm -hmm. now 30,000 people come every year. Right. And and people say, how did you know at 20 years old how to, like, well, that isn't what we were doing. Right. We just right. were like, it just grew very right. fast. In the beginning, it was younger people, and it was very basic 
early East meets West, holistic meets traditional, um, early adopters. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been many trends as as the culture has changed, and it's been a wonderful way to watch culture change. I'll bet, yeah. You know, there was a period when addiction was the big Hmm. buzzword. Every other class was about addiction. Everything was an addiction. And then that kind of got into the mainstream and diffused relationships for a long time. Everything was about relationships. So many of the teachers were couples, counselors, Mm -hmm. psychology, Jungian psychology for about 10 years was a big bulk of our classes. You know, archetypes and um, um, astrology and and a a lot of the stuff that Jung brought into the the collective unconscious. Um, And recently, one thing that we have been noting at Omega that has been um, both really promising and puzzling to learn how to deal with is that this, what we call it, the shift from me to we. Mm-hmm. There's been a sense that, okay, I've worked on myself, myself, myself so much. How do I bring what I have learned to, into my profession, into the world at large? And um, we've done a lot of uh, trainings and workshops and conferences on things like women and power um, sustainability, healing the earth. And what's puzzling about it is that how do we offer these to people who really need it and not just people who can pay for it, right. workshop junkies, people who come <laughs> all the time. So for the first time in our 40 years, we've been doing a lot of outreach to underwrite our programs so that um, more people who really need it can can be served. That's fantastic because you're right, I, and I hadn't thought about that. But of course, it's it can be rarefied error, you know, in terms of having the time to ask these questions. And and it's that's, the biggest luxury, right? Exactly, and and so necessary, actually, um, you know, to to our transformation, evolution, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. I mean, we really have to be in the room together with people. Uh, that are feeling things we aren't. Yeah, like Maslow talks about his hierarchy of needs, and it's a very um, linear description, Mm -hmm. which is like you start out just needing to eat, just needing warmth. Mm -hmm. And then if you get that, then you have time to have uh, family relationships. And then each each stage in the hierarchy requires different uh, fuel. But I don't see it as linear. There are people who are struggling to make ends meet who still, even so, want to have their souls fed, want Mm. to learn how to evolve spiritually. So it's it's not sufficient for a place like Omega to say, well, when someone gets to that place in their evolution that they could afford to come here. No, we don't have time for that. We have to find a way to help people at every stage um, do do their their soul work yeah able to come to some self-realization because it is it, it is such that's so interesting because uh, linearity is something that's really come uh, into our consciousness I think first from my understanding from monotheism actually and and this idea of there's a fall and there's a redemption and all these things you know that you start to get into linear thinking versus what it had been for, the thousands and thousands of years before that, which was cyclical, and that you, 
you would repeat the actions that were done before you, and they were considered sacred and honorable. No matter what the action was, it was considered right. a repeat of, of a sacred beautiful. act. That's beautiful, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that you were essentially, if you were fishing, you were fishing as the first fisherman. I mean, mm-hmm. like, all it's a it's a, a, such a different way uh, to orient thinking um, because we're so locked into now really machine time and uh, so yeah. Omega is a place to remove yourself, I think, from machine time. And, but, of course, again, these practices you're talking about, you can do it every day. Uh, but it takes work. You have it to does. make the effort. The muscle. You got to, like, strengthen. You go to the gym to strengthen your <laughs> physical muscles. You go to a place like Omega to strengthen your soul muscles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And at the same time, you can uh, buy the home version. Yes, <laughs> of, course, of course, of uh, course. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and it's different for everybody. I mean, everybody has their their approach or, um, or not. Uh, but... Uh, where can we where can we go there there is uh th- th- we we live in th- such a split world now it feels like and it is so much zero sum and so much mm-hmm. us against them and i so- think that's why um a lot of the return the the hunger that you see let's say in tea party people or people on the right and and i've had a lot of deep and wonderful conversations with those people. A few years ago, I did a TED Talk that I called Take the Other to Lunch because I thought, how are we going to get past divisiveness if we can't even talk to someone who believes differently from us? Right. And so for me, diversity isn't speaking to a gay person or an African-American. It's speaking to a Republican. <laughs> right. And I thought, i got to walk my talk here. I have to start speaking to people I disagree with. Mm-hmm. So I started my own little movement. I, it was really only my own because I didn't tell anyone about it. A movement of one. Of one. <laughs> right. And I, it's called Take the Other to Lunch. And I just started taking people to lunch who I never would talk to, like a mm-hmm. tea party person or my cleaning lady's brother who, you know, was opposed to same-sex marriage and things like that. And um, then I did a TED Talk about it, and other people started doing it. And uh, to me, that's really important that we humanize each other. Right. No matter what your other is, mm-hmm. go toward it. Right. Don't silo ourselves into them, me, us, Go toward the other. Most people are good. I really believe that. Right. And I do, too. And I think that once you get inside the other person's story, uh, I, I like to say, don't don't ask what's wrong with you. Ask what happened to you. You know, because everybody's got a story. Everybody's got something that, that shifted their their framing into the place they've mm. landed and and to sit with somebody and there there you know there's a lot to be said for energetics and and being in the same space with somebody and feeling how they feel what mm-hmm. they feel looking them in the eye having these discussions not to necessarily come to an agreement at all but to recognize why you disagree mm-hmm. and that you can see that in the other person and see how they got yeah. there and then we're less likely as a people to devolve into violence right and and yet, and that's where I think technology isn't our friend because you get uh, the ability to anonymously attack, mm-hmm. uh, to spread information uh, that is either false or just a sliver of the whole story, whatever it might be. And these things take on a life of their mm-hmm. own. 
Yeah, I really I my my um my forthcoming book, which will come out in the fall, is called Marrow, and it's about being my sister's bone marrow donor uh, when she had lymphoma, and um, the the process we went through to clean up our relationship Mm -hmm. so that perhaps we could clean up the way we were sharing uh, blood with each other. Because when you're a bone marrow donor, uh, the donor's blood becomes the the patient's blood. She was going to have my blood for the rest of her life. And we went through this period of therapy and just being together a lot where we discovered the craziest stuff we had believed about each other over our more than 50 years of being sisters. Mm-hmm. And we were great sisters. We loved each other, but we had built these stories, these mm-hmm. myths that had taken on a life of their own and turned into real splits between us. Right. And in that life and death situation, we, we decided we're just going to reveal to each other mm-hmm. what we think, what we did. And the healing was so fast because it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and it was simple, too. Really what it was about was, I, I'm sorry. I've been carting around these stories about you. Right. I love you. And likewise. And I came to see from that experience that it's not that hard. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. But it's not that hard. <laughs> And it's necessary, and all people can do it. Yeah, yeah. That I just I, I want to pause and, and say all those things over again because it is necessary, and uh, it feels hard. And then when you're on the other side of it, mm-hmm. it there's such relief, and oh, and you're. I these, still get shivers just hearing you say it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 these things are literally heavy that we're carrying around, mm-hmm. and you let them go, and you're lighter, and you feel it. And uh, you know it. The the issue there is that it took a life and death situation to bring it about, and and therein lies the you know the issue writ large is do we have to come up against these life and death situations to Mm -hmm. take the steps that ultimately aren't that hard to do i think that that is the question each of us needs to ask Mm ourselves every day um what 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 am i not doing why am i not doing it and can I chip away even a little bit today at coming toward the others in my life with more genuineness, authenticity, fearlessness? Exactly. I mean, that is it. And I can't help but because, yes, this is we're talking about all humans here, but we've been living inside a framework of patriarchy and masculine behavior mm-hmm. Uh, that just exacerbates that whole problem. That that why I, that, is that, Peter? What what <laughs> what is it that has? Um, because I do find it a little easier, and I want to say a little mm-hmm. for for women mm-hmm. to hear that call to authenticity and lack of defensiveness, right? And and relatedness. What what is it? What happened to men? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, here I'll tell you all about it. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, one thing is I think women might come to it easier because they are fundamentally in service to life in a certain kind of way that men never feel. 
And um, there's a million ways I want to go here, and so I'm going to try and train myself to go up one path. And some of these, I I said to Jimmy at some point, we should have a, a noise that comes over when some crazy idea is going to come out of my mouth, so people <laughs> recognize it's it's only my views. But but there's something I think deeply fundamental, and and it stems from something necessary, and that is that our species. Uh, is a part of nature. We are not separate from nature, which I think is a, a huge miss in so many ways, um, but we are a part of it. And nature, uh, while it is our ultimate mother, it feeds us. It, it's where our food and, and how we breathe and everything comes from the natural world that we are a part of. But it can also be brutal. And it can keep us from staying alive, you know, getting through a winter, getting through a, a season where there's, um, you know, a drought or something. And so to harness nature on some level so that we can survive is a natural urge. But once you succeed, <laughs> all hell breaks loose because mm -hmm. suddenly you think you can. You think you're different than nature. You're better than nature. You're you're bigger and badder. And and I believe that that men in particular took that urge and really ran with it because women give birth. They hold life. They nurture life. They have an innate built-in mechanism that says life is what I am here to bring forth and nurture and preserve and protect. And while men have some of that, there's a critical difference <laughs> that you just can't ignore. And so once men get on the path of, I have dominated the ultimate mother, I can control the earth, I am master of the universe, and then you start to create monotheism and God in his image and all these things, you just keep driving home this idea that man is superior and man in particular, and it's an infection. And I think we have been infected by that uh, at least for the past few thousand years, if not more. Wow, this is incredible. That that was that was not a weird idea. The weird sound should not come on now. Some other sound. Some right. sound yeah. like right. yes. Please right. bottle that right. and let it be known. Yeah. Yeah, be, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, because you've been in the world of this for so long. And so for me to be able to articulate something that uh, that resonates is uh wonderful mm -hmm. and 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 I feel it to my core only because I have made the decision to not pay attention to that that background condition mm -hmm. as best I can mm -hmm. and not only not pay attention to it more importantly recognize it yes and look at it and examine it and say what impulse right now am I taking that is a background condition that is false that's and, amazing and that's important work and you you didn't just fall into it i know you've done a lot of soul searching and work and your relationship with Absolutely. your wife and yep. so it's really beautifully said and these conferences i've done at omega called women in power have been all about what you just said for women to look at as we come into our power and the uh the prevailing way to use and and focus power is a paid, still a patriarchal system. Absolutely. How do we hold on to our blessed imprint of nurturing mm -hmm. 
and and be powerful and have our sovereignty and make a difference and learn the skills of negotiation and and how to walk in the world but how do we not buy the whole right. farm right. of mm-hmm. of the kind of power that's gotten us into such a mess how do we retain who we are and step into the world of power that's that's what these conferences yeah. have been about and i think the, the simplest answer to that is are you doing it for life are you doing it in service to life in in partnership with life uh, which to me equates to love um, because you're right we do not need women to co-opt uh, what men you know that i always feel like it's it's really a men's liberation movement we need because women's liberation was all about being liberated from the construct that men created. So it's, it's not something they don't, it's, it's not women that really need to be liberated. It's the whole structure that needs to come down Mm -hmm. uh, so that we are working in partnership with one another. And, and um, I think we can do it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think I'll, I'll add one thing to that was another direction I was wanting to go down. And that is that women in, I will say the Western world, but in general now it's almost global culture, um, have something men don't. Uh, And it's absolutely fundamental besides the other things I'd mentioned. And that is a rite of passage. Uh, Even though it's uh, often distorted and minimalized and everything else, women's bodies change and they feel it and they know it when it happens. Men don't have that anymore. That has been completely lost. Any sort of uh, transition between childhood and adulthood uh, has been lost. And so we get these men behaving like children for Mm. their entire lives. Mm -hmm. That's another (laughs) really refined, amazing nugget of yeah. articulation, well, Peter Buffett. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and um, with that, uh, I guess we're coming to a close here. Um, but I really hope we can explore some of these things more in the future because um, we're, we're getting to the crux of it. And mm-hmm. it's so fun to do that uh, with someone who has been in the, the service of life and love and seeking uh, their entire life. Um, so thank you. What else can we say as we close? Uh, What wonderful piece of of your story uh, can you leave our listeners with? Well, just a a sense of empowering yourself to bring your loving authenticity to the fore today, Mm -hmm. to be brave, to be brave to be yourself and to do it with love and to say the things that maybe you know you should but have been too scared to and to do it. And why not? That's it for What's Next. For more shows, go to wherever fine podcasts are found. The music for the show is original and available at peterbuffett.com. For Peter Buffett, I'm Jimmy Buff. See you next time. (laughs) 